The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrimark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is a cattle grazier who has lived and worked on the same property for all of his 91 years. Ian Fitzgerald still works on the farm and has seen some incredible changes in the world over his time on the planet. So I'm pleased to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Ian Fitzgerald, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you, Mark. You're a real identity of the Kilkeven area now, 91 years of age. Let's go back to the early years of growing up in rural Queensland. What was it like? Well... It, it was a, a far different world than kids have kids growing up today. I was born in the same year the Great Depression commenced. And so everyone in the land, with a few exceptions, were very poor money-wise. And uh, we li- lived quite a primitive existence. We had no wireless, or we called it as we called it then. We had no refrigeration, no uh, telephone, no power. So uh, it was quite a different world we lived in. And yet for kids in the bush, it was good. And I wasn't conscious of the thought that we were poverty stricken, which everyone was. Uh, We had a nice creek to play in at the weekends and uh, I didn't go to school till I was eight years old and a bush school started up about three or four k's from home and my rest of my entire education was spent there and uh, people would might look down on the education I received. It certainly was in a narrower sphere. It was um, very limited subjects but by gee did we learn those subjects well or else and uh, things like poetry that was I I enjoyed that and uh, it was hard for the parents particularly at a young age naturally I wouldn't be aware of our financial situation I still don't remember what it was (laughs) but but, um, it was um, it must have been very difficult for them. I can recall swagmen, as we called them, walking the railway line, which went past our house, not about a couple of k's in the distance, and uh, bands of swagmen walking the line from town to town, hoping to get something to eat. As far as I'm concerned, there was no dole, no... I think if they went to the police station they would receive a voucher and that then they would have to move on to the next station no uh, phone in their pocket to reassure their people back in the towns where they were going must have been hard for them though it must have been horrible I can remember the police would moving them on and uh, it must have been humiliating and, of course, that went on for a number of years, really up until World War II broke out, 
10 years later. And uh, no, for my existence was okay. We had uh, uh, milked cows, we had a dairy at that stage. And when I got to eight years old and going to school, you'd milk cows twice a day and there and back. And uh, we weren't conscious of lack of nice things because no one else had them. We didn't miss what we didn't know about. But you had a great lifestyle. Well, looking back, it was. I fear I hated school, even though <laughs> with, due, with, due, with due modesty, I say I did very well at school, maths, history, English, all that sort of thing. But I still detested it. And that was always a worry to me, doing well at school. But apart from that, you know, I started riding horses when I was three years old and still endeavouring to ride them. Uh, so it was, you'd say, carefree in the early years. Do you think it was an advantage growing up in the country? Oh, absolutely. And I still think it would be if it were possible nowadays, more so nowadays, because, you know, you get that bit of background. And uh, a bit, we, I did my homework with hurricane lanterns. Really? Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't envy the modern kids going into this the world we have now. Uh, I think they've got a lot to worry them, and I don't know I would have coped too well. Speaking of things to worry, what do you think of the COVID situation? Well, I'm very pessimistic. Maybe we get pessimistic when we're old. But, <laughs> you know, I, in the unlikely event of a vaccine, I think it might be here when I'm gone. I fear for the... You know, I think it's another lifestyle, another world we've entered, isn't it? It's changed. And will it ever change back? Do you think, though, that we'll be permanently scarred by the whole coronavirus epidemic, pandemic? Well, I don't know about individuals, and they will be to a degree, but the free world, it's more than scarred. This thing has deprived them of money, and their, our economies are going fat, and uh, what's going to happen? Does it worry the amount of money that's spent to prop up the economy now, yourself growing up in the Depression? Are you seeing another sort of similar circumstance now, though it's being propped up by the government with money they don't have? That's a very good question, Mark. I know everyone says that's a good question, but that is. Um, uh, yes. See, I'm torn between the lockdowns and the fact I sell beef to around the world, you know, in our bit of a cattle operation. And how is the country going to provide this money? Can it go on forever? I mean, what's going to happen? Yes, I worry intensely. And I also worry even without the COVID, but the world's such a dangerous place. We sell about 73% of our beef overseas. So we're more subject to determinations of overseas governments than we are of our own. Hmm. Do you worry about it for your grandkids? Absolutely. 
I hate to say it, but I say that I fear for my grandkids. I That sounds very pessimistic, but the free world seems to be on its way out. We've seen great civilizations in the past, Roman and other, and uh, w- w- there's not a God-given right for us to be on top forever. Maybe it's coming to an end. I hope not. You're a beef producer. We sell a lot of beef to China. Are you worried about the whole Chinese situation, the interaction with the Australian and Chinese governments? Do you know what, Mark? I'm such a pig-headed old coot. I would cheerfully starve <laughs> than backing down to the Chinese, and I don't care who knows it. I think the government at this stage is doing a reasonable job of standing up to the Chinese. Uh, I think they're just about our top customer now. Japan's about equal. But I would go broke hoping that there'll be other markets. We've got to diversify away from China somehow in every facet of life. Should we be looking back at our domestic markets? Well, there's not a great deal we can do about our domestic markets. There's only 25 million of us, and we're producing three times the requirement. So the domestic is naturally very important, but it's not as important as the export markets. And in such a dangerous world we live in, decisions by parliaments or dictators overseas are going to decide how well we are paid. Hmm. You've spent 91 years on this earth. You've got a lot of wisdom. How are the governments, the leaders of the country, handling this situation with China, the COVID situation? How are you looking at the government these days and, and what they're doing to look after it? Well, I'm not devout with political leanings, Mark, so you can make that uh, a point. I think the present government is doing a good job in a very, very bad situation. You know, we go to this balance, what they're doing, about paying people money, and and against that, is it going to send us up the drain eventually if it keeps on? I think it's already doing it. In the GFC, everyone got $1,000, and we were paying for it for years. And look what they're doing now. Well, you know, if it came to me, I'd take it, I've got to say, (laughs) but only because a lot of other people are. I'd be really and truly be happy not to take those things. And I see, you know, useless infrastructure being built, and I wonder, God, can we stop the useless stuff and employ people with, you know, good infrastructure. What sort of infrastructure do you see as useless? Oh, various amenities for little towns. Uh, if it were no virus and employment was okay but and we weren't shelling out so much money. But I think too much money is being dished out frivolously, not particularly by, the, I don't know, the state government or the federal government, uh, it's a very difficult situation, I know. Are you glad that the border's closed? Here again. <laughs> <laughs> Both astride the fence. Uh, yes, I think so. But it can't stay closed for too long. 
the economy must start to pick up. What are the long-term ramifications in your eyes do you see for the economy because of what is going on at the moment? Very pessimistic. I mean, rural industries, if we ever come through this, I think there's a glimmer of hope there. You know, the amount of people in the world and the food shortages. Of course, you can have plenty of people starving in the world and uh, plenty of uh, food. How do you distribute it to these countries? Remember when um, years ago, was it the singer, he did a very good job of buying grain up and sent it to African countries and before the majority of it got there, it was picked off by rebel gangs and everything. So how do you distribute the food? But if the economies of the better developed lands stay alive, I see a pretty good future for rural industry. Well, that's an interesting thing, though. I know of a farm, a pig farm, that I've referred to before that originally it used to support, it was out at Gumeri, a pig farm used to support three families. It got to the stage that it couldn't support one family. Now, do you see improvement in the rural sector or is it going the way of that particular pig farm? That It's gone that way, that particular fa- pig farm. I know heaps of properties, including our own, who paid a lot of money in casual labour and permanent jobs. We still have one permanent and a couple of casual. But years ago, we could um, afford more labour. And so the workforce has disappeared from the country because there are no jobs in a lot of cases. I see the start of it all was when the first header harvester was invented <laughs> and it did away with... And the see, on the land in bigger areas than this, machinery has replaced the labour. And that's always going to be the same. But it I, does make us more efficient. Oh, absolutely. And without it, we wouldn't be operating. I suppose small crops, the main hope for labour is there because... It's, it's a, a labour-intensive operation. And I think, forget about me and the beef industry, but I think the Australian rural industries have done a wonderful job in staying with it. What about the water situation? Do you see that it's been mismanaged across the country? To a degree, of course, a little Norwich is dangerous. <laughs> I, I've always been interested in creeks and streams and uh, the Murray-Darling thing is my pet thing. And I, my idea on that, for this country to survive, they'll have to pipe water into that system. It's no good building dams in the headwaters of the Murray-Darling because you deprive the people downstream, south of Sarah, etc. You've got to somehow get water in from the outside and that'll make our country great if it ever happened. What about ideas of the fact that they say that they should harvest the water that comes in North Queensland and be piped or canaled out west? Do you like the idea? I like it. 
I don't know if you could get it to the Murray Darling. That's the problem. The Murray Darling catchment's not far from here, but uh, the idea of the original Badfield stream was that the water they're talking about now goes down the Thompson and the Baku, and that runs to nowhere. And there's a lot of good country there, as I'm told, but it won't do the same job as if we could somehow invigorate the Murray-Darling system. Could you pipe it from the North Queensland to there? I don't know. Well, I have had it uh, suggested that uh, canals would be the way to go because eventually the water would sweeten and the salt would go out of it as it went further inland. And so uh, it would be definitely a way to try and harvest the water that's there. You know, we're not using it. It gets... It rains, it, it disappears, and we have floods every year, or most years. I totally agree with you. Um, you know, uh, it's the driest continent on Earth, and as you've just said, a lot of the water runs to waste. And uh, there are certain areas you couldn't do it, I know. Uh, the Clarence is a lovely, beautiful river, and it has a... It's a sitting duck for something to go. But I wouldn't approve of that because it, that valley is supporting a lot of people and everything. So you've got to be a bit picky in your choices. Hmm. What do you think of that dam, the Traveston Dam concept that uh, was mooted for this area? Well, uh, I believe in dams, but I, I didn't believe in the... Only because I'm a bit interested in dams, I know nothing. But <laughs> that was an, a terrible site for that dam. It was flat, mainly, and uh, widespread, and you would have had a lot of water when the dam was full, only a metre or two or three deep. Mm. And there are far better sites. If you went up to Barumba, which has an excellent water catch and, and raised it, you're depriving no one, really. It's, it's bushland above it. It's like a wedge in the... Uh, it, you can produce water economically there but simply because it's deep and narrow. It is the perfect spot for it. Absolutely. Why do you think, was there an ulterior motive that you know about that was behind the decision to build the Traveston Dam? Look, I'm... You've heard theories, but I wouldn't like to comment on it. I don't know, and I don't want to get political. Hmm. Okay, now, going back to the days when you were growing up in Kilkeven, your family's been in the whole area for quite a while. For how long? 1874. What brought them to the area, and how did they get land in the area in the first My place? My grandfather was an Irishman, and they were Irish gentry, apparently, wouldn't think of the look of me, would you, Mark? But uh, <laughs> the, the British deprived them of their land. No witness from me about that, but that's what happened. But he came to Australia with six pounds in his pocket. My Irish grandfather... A paying guest? He came out in the 1850s. He paid his way and had six pounds. He got jobs around the place. One of his jobs was here at Glastonbury, where he... Uh, managed a property for rallies of ours, Clapperton's. And uh, he eventually 
took up this land at Bewoogam. He was one of the first settlers, about 2,400 acres, and uh, he reared a family of seven children there, the youngest who was my father, and uh, he did well, apparently. He went through the Great Bank busts of the 1890s and still had considerable money when he died in the 1920s. One of we're talking virus, I had an aunt who was a nurse and she perished from the Spanish flu. The Australian soldiers came back in 1919 and brought the Spanish flu with them. And I had another sister drowned in the creek there. It was full of history. There were a bad man, uh, Black Campbell. He roamed the area there and two mountains that I know very well and he killed about eight or nine people, women particularly. And one night my father was away, he rode his horse to Maryborough and she saw him coming in the distance, my grandmother, and she picked up my eldest uncle and ran across the creek and hid in the scrub all night. Really? And next day, of course, my father came back. They eventually caught him at Tawampum and hung him. But he roamed there for several years. And I don't want to go on about all the suicides now, but uh, I've experienced one of our people suiciding on that place when we owned it. And another one years ago wrote a poem about that. And I won't bore you with that now. But uh, no, it was tough. He milked cows made butter by hand and carted by pack horse to Gympie and swam the Mary River to do so and many times. And so I admire him. He was, he was great. Of course, my father left there in, when I was three months old and my brother and I had the opportunity to buy it back the hard way in 1979 which we did. How do you mean the hard way? <laughs> we didn't get, le- it wasn't left to us. We <laughs> paid every cent for it. <laughs> it's always the hard way money on the land, uh, Mark. And uh, unfortunately, in 2005, my brother had died and my sister, well, she wasn't interested in the cattle as much as she liked playing with money. That's not a derogatory statement either. So we had to sell that, but we still have 3,000 acres at home, plus about the same amount of lease country. So it's enough to keep me out of mischief. Why did you decide to buy it, even though it wasn't uh, left to you? Oh, it was the normal thing, Mark. On the land, any small business, you'd be very aware, without me telling you, there's not a level situation. You either go forward or you go backward. And as the years went by, you needed to run a lot more cattle, milk a lot more cows to pay your way. So the obvious thing, if you got yourself a bit ahead, was try and expand. And a lot of the grazers around the area have done a better job than we ever did. They've expanded enough to survive. You see, I can use the Holden and... Uh, um, Ford Falcon thing 
When we sold Bullock's store, Bullock's in 1974, before the Great Beef Depression, we could sell 12 store Bullock's and buy a Falcon or a Holden. I don't know how many it'd take you now. <laughs> 40, 50? So, Gee whiz, yeah, at least. That would apply to everything you do on the land. The chemicals you're, you must use, the rates, everything, the price of the tractors. My last tram that we buy was over 10 years ago and it was 50 grand. Its equivalent now would be 100 grand. And so you need more produce. And I think this is applied to small crops. Everything has got to be done on a bigger scale. That's life. We can't whinge about that. And uh, I think that it applied to every... Sadly, the batik people growing veggies or this or that, sadly, their day's gone. Well, that's what I believe. I'm not cheering about it. I, I think it's terrible. It get, kept the bush populated. What's the biggest thing that you've learnt after being on the one property for 91 years and being around for that amount of time for that matter? What's the biggest thing you think that you've learnt over your life? Well, I'm not trying to preach, but certainly as you get older, you're a lot more tolerant of others and you recognise your own deficiencies. <laughs> the thing you, I learned on the land, that always uh, make an estimate of what you're going to earn and drop it back about 30% and work <laughs> off that and you'll survive. Uh, certainly capital gain has been a big thing on the land. Those of us who've kept a bit of land, uh, in my time, I can remember the first land my brother and I bought in 1949. My father gave us 250 pounds each and we bought a thousand acres of good country. We paid the sum of 3,500 quid for it. That's equivalent to $7,000. So capital gain has helped. To, capital gain more than income has helped the people who stayed on the land. Are you glad you've stayed on the land all these years? Oh, look, at the end of the day, I look at the, today's technology and everything and how it's improved or declined, whatever you like. And I would say I wouldn't have been very useful for anything else. I've trouble is I stayed there too long. I'm totally embedded in the land. The land's my life. I could like to sit on the creek bank and grin at the water flowing by. On the rare occasions we get some acceptable cattle to sit there and drool at them. And, <laughs> and you know, our Gold Coast, ever since I was a boy, and right up till now has been the creek. We're lucky enough to have a big, big creek there. And we picnic over the years with hundreds of different people who've come and gone. So I've been too embedded in the land. Well, you see, I did it the easy way with my education in World War Two, I I don't want to be, I don't want to be sound an old skite, but I did do well. There was a thing called scholarship, we had to pass. It's the equivalent of grade eight now. That's where I stopped, and my ex-teacher and everyone wanted me 
to go on. But I hated the thought and a great uh, incentive was for the parents. The Japanese thing in 1942 were just off our doorstep. Uh, you know, there was a hospital ship, the Centaur, sunk off the coast of Maruchidor. And so I was able to use that and a few other excuses <laughs> not to go on with my education. Now, I don't think I would have liked it. I, as I said, I, I did quite well at primary school and um, I'm a good mathematician. I can add up, subtract everything, divide, multiply in my head with a lot of things. But uh, I stopped being smug about that because it's useless to anyone now, that sort of thing. You just pick up a thing and do it. <laughs> How are you with computers? You, uh, useless. <laughs> useless. My, it's, I call it age laziness. I rely on my daughter and my other family. There's three of them. Two of them are within spitting distance. I rely on them to do that aspect of it. I, mine's too tired. You know, you get fatigued and tired when you get old. Mm. With the whole um, growing up in the land, though, it must have been more of an education just being on the amount of property you were anyway. Oh, yes, yes. And here again, with due modesty, I'll say to be successful on the land now, you've got to know a hell of a lot, a little about a hell of a lot. You've got to be a vet. You've got to be up with all the changes. It's no good an ancient like me sticking to things that have gone by. Uh, they're gone, we have to move with them. No, you learned a lot. You also learned, see, the roads were shocking in those days. The main road from Gympie to Kingaroy was just a mass of corrugations and potholes. And during the war, of course, my father had a petrol ration of four gallons per month. Wow. 18 litres. Wow. And that gave us a trip to Gympie and a trip to Kilkeven for a month. And there was a big black market going on in petrol tokens. And I'm happy to say my father wouldn't touch it, but a lot of people did. You could buy on the black market tokens. And, of course, during the war, um, there was butter rationing, there was meat rationing, there was sugar rationing. Many more things, petrol rationing, of course. And it was a certain degree of privation, but it wasn't. There was plenty of rough food around for us. We, I can't say we suffered hardship because of the war. It was an exciting time for me because uh, I was, let's see, um, 16 when the war ended and 10 years old when it broke out. I was going to school there out, out on the highway and uh, the, in, when the Japanese invasion was imminent, uh, a lot of the Middle East divisions, Australia, came back past our place on the road, going up to the South Burbot to regroup. And that was exciting time for a boy of a Sunday to sit by the road 
and look at all these troops going by. And one morning I walked to school, about three and a half k's, and Oakview Road, it's only about two k's long, it was packed either side with troops and military equipment. And of course this was just amazing for me. But even so, there was this underlying underlying fear even at my age, then I was, say, 12, 13, there was a great fear, the whole nation, that we were to be invaded. What would you have done if it had happened? Hmm, I'm overusing that good question thing. <laughs> you know, it were all, there was the talk of the Brisbane line and they were going to evacuate. We were north of it. And I don't know, I've read a lot of military history, that's my thing, and I can't decide whether it was real or imagined. And there were certain steps to take. We would have been evacuated, uh, I think, but I don't know. In the event, looking back, I can't see how the Japanese could have made a success of it. And the Coral Sea battle was a turning point for the Japanese like they came in right round into the Coral Sea. Everyone says we won the battle. We didn't win the battle. It was a draw, but we stopped, prevented the Japanese from coming any further. How were you getting information at this stage? Oh, the Bible, the Courier Mail, not the miserable one you see now. It was a huge paper. It came a day late, late on the train to Oakview, so today's paper, Mondays, we'd get Tuesday. And that was the link with the outside world. Later on, by 1940, we had a radio. But it was a magnificent paper. And I used to read every bit of it. And uh, that's how I became interested in military history, the wonderful pictures and that's. And I had a great friend, Ron Dine. Do you remember Ron? Yes. He and I became very firm friends. We were both military historians of a sort, and he's a great loss to me. Well, Ron, of course, served in the military. He was a colonel, left-hand colonel. He went to Vietnam, and uh, he was uh, a great character, Ron. Died too young. Okay, now, keeping on that uh, information track, the Gimpy Times has recently folded and has now gone digital, along with a lot of regional newspapers right around the country. What do you think about the fact that these things are going by the wayside? I'm devastated, and it, it's inevitable. The Gimpy, I was in touch with a bloke who's high up in the Rupert Murdoch thing, and he said to me two years ago, in a few years, he said to me then, that the Australian was just paying its way and no more. And if you look at the Courier, I'm sure you would now, it's a shadow of its former self, isn't it? It certainly is a much smaller well. It was a broadsheet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've seen the new copy of the Gympie Times. I won't... Of what? The Gympie Today. I won't criticise it. I think it's better than I thought. I just hope it stays around... And for a 91-year-old, little things like funeral notices aren't in it. That is important in a rural area. Is uh, that a, one of the tough parts about growing to the, the age that you have, that, like you mentioned, a brother that didn't 
that's passed away now that you've bought property with. Is that one of the difficult parts of growing old? You mean socially or what? Well, just the fact that people are dying, that um, you know, you're outliving people. I can tell you honestly that I'm not frightened of dying. I'm damn frightened of going into a nursing home. My scenario is that I fall off the horse or the tractor one day and cark it. <laughs> Save me a lot of money, won't it? <laughs> well, that's the thing that and was... Sorry, I'm interrupting. I've lost too many good friends. That's one of the penalties of growing old. Uh, I've lost a lot of good friends, but two exceptional ones, Ron Dyer and Mike Caddo, 20 odd years younger than I am, and they died too early, and that's a great sadness. Because when you talk the nursing homes, you'd rather die on the property, but there is a call and your family's been involved in a push to get a um, retirement village in Kilkeven. That's how I came to be on the landline program, trying to promote my daughter is in charge of this, and I hope she gets it, but, you know, their doubts. And it's hard times, isn't it? And I saw an interesting article in The Australian last weekend about small and local for retirement homes. Now, it doesn't sound a good commercial thing to do, but you see, Mark, if I went into a home now, it's, it may be quite probable they wouldn't get in as close as Gympie, and that's 50 k's away. Now, if I were pushed there or further away, for a while my rallies will always come, but my friends, the better friends, will last longer, but it's time, it's expense, it's distance, it's everything. You, you land in a strange world. You have the trauma of losing your place of living and you're in a new world. Uh, I hope to try and employ somebody, if I'm not a basket case, for a while to just help me a bit. But ultimately, I fear I'll live too long. I've got no desire to break records in the age. I always say now, too, 90's the new 70, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, when I was a kid, a 70-year-old, oh boy, past it. <laughs> but now, there are plenty of 70-year-olds doing a lot for the place. Well, they certainly are. So, you don't want to ever leave the farm? Well, I've stayed there too long, Mark. No. It'd be just the end of everything. You're still working today. What's your secret? I've no secret. Just a stupidity, a determination. I don't, won't use the word fitness. I'm too messed up. I've had three broken elbows, broken spine, uh, smashed up shoulder, which is still loss of memory, all these things. So when we talk... I've had a knee replacement, a hip replacement. So when we talk about a level of fitness, but I do stagger off for a walk when I'm not doing anything, and that might do give me a K and a half on a good day. Well, we talk about the necessity of going to a nursing home. My wife was in, in a nursing home in Gympie, and I can only say 
the people in that institution are wonderful. And I suppose that applies to many others. But I'm a little bit lucky in staying on my own longer than a lot of other people. I have a good friend across the creek and all her family are a long way away and her friends have gone and I can see the loneliness aspect. I have a good family and I still have lots of friends apart from the best of them running off and killing the, uh, khaki it on me. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, I can see I'm lucky. I can eke it out further. But I fear, and particularly with this virus, that lack of interaction between people, and you know, in the early days of the virus, who knows it will hap won't happen again. Uh, intermingling has died down a lot, hasn't it? And believe me, that's hitting older people. I can just see a twinge of it, but I have enough good luck around the place to, to master it. But I can see a lot of old people are going to languish on their own. And it's I read an interesting thing too. It was referred to as isolation laziness. And I can detect a bit of this when I've got a lot of aches and pains. You've got to go for a walk. And in the end, you put it off during the day. Then you say, bugger it, I'll just read. And uh, so I can see great problems simply because it might be a selfish attitude. Uh, I fear what's in front. I suppose everyone does. Uh, I'm not very fit in the mobility thing, but I've had three stents in my heart and the engine's very good. Sometimes I wonder whether that's a good thing. You're still working every day? Oh, working would be an exaggeration. <laughs> when there's a job, I can feed cattle out of a ute. Uh, I mean, grazing them with dogs. I can give a hand with the bigger paddocks on the horse. I do a bit of digging. We're only a little place. We've got about a hundred odd acres of cultivation which we double crop. Well, I can stand up to about two and a half or three hours, give my son a chance to go away and do something for a while and kid myself I've helped. Uh, as for work on the ground, I'm useless. Does it keep you alive? Does it keep you um, focused and interested? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, if I just stuck around the house all day, read the book, read books, read the paper, got too lazy to go on a walk, I'm dead. You've seen a whole bunch of things over nearly a hundred years of life. What are some of the things that over the years have standard, stood out for you? Like obviously the Second World War. Um, do you remember the moon landing? What are the, what are the things that have really stood out for you over your 91 years? Well, you've, you've, well the Great Depression, an issue I was old enough to see the effects of the swagman in the Great Depression and of course World War Two, And World War Two, a bit of historic stuff, I'm not a historian but I just love it. That's made me a bit of a connoisseur of World War Two. so it stood out at the time and forever and ever after. Uh, the moon landing of course. Strange to relate, I'm not that interesting, interested in outer in space stuff, space technology, but uh, 
There are a lot of other things I am interested in. Oh, of course, getting married. Mustn't forget that. 56. <laughs> my wife passed away four years ago with Parkinson's. And... Uh, so, um, she was a wonderful wife. Yeah, okay. But, of course, on the land, the push forward when World War II ended, we were able to buy another dairy, put a bloke on it, and, of course, 90 cows in those days was big stuff. Now you talk 900 cows. Here again, economy of scale, like every aspect of rural life. And uh, so doing that, paying it off, buying another block, couple more blocks, etc., etc. And of course, in between the Great Beef Depression started in 74, England went to the common market and we milked cows to produce cream which was transported to the butter factory in Gympie, which was the biggest butter factory in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, really? That's correct. Hmm. And England joined the common market, and that market collapsed. So the butter from um, sending cream to make butter finished. So a lot of the people converted to milk, but we had accumulated some land to make a grazing proposition effective or reasonably so so we were able to sell out our dairies and uh, pure grazing with a bit of agriculture to back the grazing up and of course so that was big but a very big one then in 1974 I'm a bit vague I think it was called a, an oil shortage in the world you probably know about it, Mark, better than I do. But we lost our beef markets just in a flash. Okay. To give you some example, those bullocks we sold in 1974 for $232, and 11 or 12 of them would have bought a Falcon or a Holden, in a short time we were getting $65 for those bullocks. Now that went on to at least... 1978, we, after the initial back pedal, we managed to grow quite a lot of hay. The racehorse industry was strong and we produced quite a lot of hay to feed racehorses and grew limited amounts of grain, which were quite viable in those days. So from the first year drop, we managed to hold the line for the next three years or so. And then it came good with a bang, and that's when we bought the Bewoogum property. Mm. And uh, so we went reasonably well there. Mm. So buying property is really a skill? I don't know about a skill, Mark. I think it is a matter of doing your sums well. <laughs> uh, the people who don't borrow money to buy property are the exception in the couple of last particular cases, we borrowed very, very little, so it wasn't a problem. But um, now the value of the land is so high, and you can 
pay too many thousand dollars to stand a cow and that's what it's all about and I wouldn't tell anyone uh, how to run a place or how to buy a place I'm no good example but you've got to do your sums particularly well how many cattle will that place run but there's one thing that the banks will ask you to do if you need them that is to put out um, what um, a list of how many dollars you're going to earn in the next few years now you've got the weather up and down like a yo-yo that there I believe there is climate change I'm not suggesting how it's happened or what's happening but I've seen to try to muck around with a bit of agriculture I've seen definite quite major changes is it cyclic though that we uh... that's my belief but how do I know well you've been around for a while you would have we were seen... only just a uh, an ant in the <laughs> scheme of things, aren't we? And I believe so, Mark, but I know there's been a change. But I believe, of course, there are too many cattle in the paddock. I mean, too many people in the world, aren't there? And that's <laughs> going against us. Uh, uh, so uh, I had a friend, a doctor once 30 years ago, and he said to me, you know, with this population was rising then, he said to me, the only thing that's going to save the world is a big pandemic. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Need I remind you there's one happening now and it hasn't finished yet. Mm. So, all these things, but so, and then again buying a property, are you good enough to predict how much potage you'll get for your cattle in three or four years' time? Maybe another 74 will come. The world's a volatile place. Well, plus the, uh, the, the rain is not always as constant as it used to be. Do you find that there's just, is there, as you say, climate change, is there just less rain now? Absolutely. We had that record floods of 2011 and 2013 where we've never seen rain like it. Mm. But the lead up to that was very dry. Of course, we cocky... If we ever asked how we're going, we'd say bloody dry, even if it wasn't. But since the floods, decent summer rains, and aut the autumns have been shocking. Now, it's a, even where you live here, it's a different world. It's been shocking up in the Kilkeven area. And this is happening far too often. You only get a little window. Even things like endeavouring to run a few cows the rain at our place didn't come till late January. And a little detail, which might be boring, we take our bulls away at the end of March. So you have about a two-month window in that situation to get your cows pregnant. Now, the cow has to calve. It must give you a calf in a little place. It's got to suckle the calf, and it has to be fertile cycle to go back in calf that's having a dramatic effect these bad summers and autumns on primary production in the, our area so what is it doing what's the effect you miss out you get a poor calving and in breeding cattle there are about several things you need to concentrate on 
Fertility, 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 fertility. <laughs> the other things are minor because you must produce, say, 300 plus wieners each year or you're working for nothing. And these strange seasons have impacted to a great degree on that. Are you having to monitor them and, and really allow for the changes? Oh, yes. We Look, I don't present myself as a no-all cattleman. I'm still trying to learn, actually. I might learn a lot when I get older. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, this is not a... Look, being on the land now with cattle, it's not just a fact of putting cattle on the land and sitting on the veranda and watching them grow fat. It's... You've got to know a little about a hell of a lot of things. So it did give you a good education being on the land. You might not have been you might not have been book smart back in the day, or it, you were, but you didn't follow through. But you got a good education on the land. It certainly was, and a lot of it was the hard way. Um, in the early days when we bought land, Noel and I, we borrowed, you know, and it was tough. Hmm. And I'm not trying to th- say I went hungry. I didn't. But um, no, you do get educator endeavours, and a, a hell of, and you've got to be open to change. You must be. Did you ever want to get up and leave and go somewhere else and try your hand at uh, other areas? <laughs> I had ideas of going to the Korean War, but uh, at that stage they were only taking regulars anyway, and. Uh, I had a brother who went to live in England and wanted me to go with him because I had no money. No, I've no regrets. The person I am, or good, bad or indifferent, I don't think I was cut out for anything else. Not that I made a success of it. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like that you're still out there and you're still doing it. I'm still trying. So, yeah, well, let's talk about that. Talk about regrets. What are some of the things that you wished you'd had a crack at? I don't know about the better education thing. I don't think I would have gone away from the land. So I don't know about that. Um, Of course, we had... No. I always, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a timber truck driver and an engine driver, (laughs) train driver. But no, apart from that... uh, probably envy others. I used to play a bit of sport, not very well, but that was a great thing round the bush after the war. Uh, and transport was limited because the roads were shocking. There was petrol rationing right up to 49. Um, it taught communities to come together. Kilkeven, Waluga. Kilkeven had about four tennis teams back then. I was one of them. I won't, I'm with modesty, I won't say I was one of the top ones. Uh, <laughs> uh, it brought people together. It, it made communities. It kept communities there. But you see, the little towns, sadly, they're gone. Uh, and they always will be. It's not only here. Perhaps in where you live, it's more orientated acreages and you've got thicker settlement. So they tend to conglomerate, if that's the word. But no, the changes I've seen in my life has definitely seen the end of the rural towns. 
my little village of Oakview, a mile distant from where I live, used to have a telephone exchange, a sawmill implying, implying 40 odd people, it's gone, bought up by the big millers. Uh, three or four cow cockies bring their cream into the rail. Uh, we had cricket teams, tennis teams, uh, ping pong teams, picnic down the creek people. So these little communities, more labour required, more people, and nowhere to go because the roads were rough and you couldn't afford to, and it was an ordeal. Even after the war, there was a permit system for cars. My father pranged our car, and we were about three years without a car. We went nowhere. You couldn't buy another car second-hand, certainly not new ones. And a lot of the good cars, I think, were taken by the military. And I know Dad, after the war, waited till 1948. His permit to buy one was approved. And in 1948, after a long, long wait, he bought this American Chev car. And we were we lads pleased. Uh, but during the war, there was a trade in the black market. It was there, I've no uh, problem with saying about it, where if you did the wrong thing, you could buy a worn out car for a heap of money. That was, uh, I'm, I was looking for the term, the military requisition, was that the term? Something like that. All those things kept communities together. And if you could make it of a Sunday to play sport if you weren't working... Do you think you're wise? You've been around 91 no, years. No, no, no. I've gathered together a bit of knowledge and tolerance, and I'm a bit of a thinker, unfortunately. <laughs> I think too much. No, no, no. I'm not wise. Uh, I just have this pessimistic attitude towards what's going to happen to my grandkids. One of the big technological step forwards, steps forward that you've experienced during your lifetime. These days I remember when the first mobile phone happened, when I remember 74, colour TV came out. What are the big things technologically, whether it be the car or you know the development of such, what are the things that you've really felt that have made an impression on you? Well, the car after the war, uh, the things that happened, oh, of course, there are innumerable droughts which put us into irrigation, we survived. But, uh, oh, lots of big worldwide things. But, you know, the 74 depression, the cattle depression, that went on for four years. That nearly broke a lot of people, possibly did. Uh, no, the technological things. Oh, well, we got our first phone in 1938. It was a fencing wire from tree to tree. <laughs> it worked to a degree. Um, our first radio, wireless we called it. We certainly didn't have it at the outbreak of war, but we had it not long after. What was that like? Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, it's just... And then... The coming of the electricity in 1954 or 55, 
What a wow. difference that made. Uh, we had electricity in the house. We had electricity for the irrigation. No more lying with a ida down beside the tractor at night pumping the water onto the farm. When you're waiting for the big belt to fly off into the water hole and retrieve it. <laughs> so, uh, yes, electricity was a huge lift. Yeah, and the technology, oh, well, television, of course. Who wouldn't be impressed? When did you get your first telly? I can't think. 70s, perhaps. Didn't, uh, yeah, 70s, I'd say. Mm. Uh, you couldn't get a reception anyway, up that way. <laughs> Just snow. <laughs> so... Uh, I, uh, to save face, I said, well, I can't get a, uh, a reception here, so I can't buy one. I might have been very short of money at the time, too. Don't <laughs> worry. Um, yeah, television. The new technology, I know it's wonderful, uh, but it's, as I say, it's bypassed me. I need it there, and I need people to help me. But sometimes I think, I see kids in the street. You know, I'd like to have a yap, as you can see by now. Um, <laughs> uh, kids in the street walking across without looking and looking at phones. And are they going to evolve where they'll be a few metres apart and incapable of conducting a conversation but texting one another. Well, with this coronavirus, they have to stay apart. So, hey, it might, it might work in their favour. Let's hope so. <laughs> I wonder. What do you see with your grandkids with the technology, how they're adapting to it? Does that surprise you? I don't know whether it surprises me because my progeny all had a good education. Thank goodness we managed three unis and uh, one ag college. So um, they, so they've been, have adapted very well. Three of them have anyway. The other one's a bit like me, but some, he's a good man though. Um, they've put their kids on a path that makes them in, on stream with the technology. Whereas I can ask a grandkid to look something up for me. <laughs> so they've certainly adapted. I'd be the. Uh, I'm not saying my one son isn't intelligent. He's learning the computer, but he's a little bit more like me, sadly, than they are. But they've all uh, become decent human beings. And that really is the main thing. The absolute main thing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you. And um, hopefully we can do it again very soon. And I really appreciate you joining me over the bonnet. Ian Fitzgerald, thanks for joining us. Well, I thank you, Mark. And I don't know why you bothered with me, but uh, once I start talking, I tend not to stop. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Mary Mark Medical. 
contact Marymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery or craft foam or even loose filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. And they'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats. And they've also got anti-fatigue matting. And they have industrial mats and rubber. And if they don't have it, Andrew will get it for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount. And you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show. And you have to ask for your discount. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving, that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. Their PosiTrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, an 8-ton and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and have a roller and even a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 and I guarantee the earth will move for you.